0: welcome back to the Pathology Grand Tour. I'm Michael Schubert, and we'll be stopping our bus today at Immunology and Infectious Disease. On today's exciting tour, we're joined by Celine Gunder, a practicing HIV and infectious disease specialist at Bellevue Hospital, and host of the well-known podcasts American Diagnosis and Epidemic. We're also joined by Michael Schuring, who is director of the Division of Clinical Immunopathology at the University of Pittsburgh. They're here to walk us through a day in their lives. And tell us more about their fields of expertise. So, Michael and Celine, thank you both so much for joining me today for this episode of the Pathology Grand Tour, where we're going to focus on immunology and infectious disease. Uh, can you start by maybe telling me a little bit about what led you to medicine in general and to your work in immunology or infectious disease specifically?
1: Yeah, my goal from middle school probably was. Went- uh, biology, and I wanted to be entomologist to study insects. And I collected insects, I studied them all the time, but my, finally my biology teacher said it's not practical at all. Think about something better. And this is how I just entered medical school in Moscow. It was in Russia, and Moscow, in USSR.
0: That's actually a really fascinating path i hadn't heard before i've never seen someone go from insects to to immunology uh, Celine, what about you? How did you come to medicine and infectious disease
2: I am the daughter of two immigrants uh, to the United States. Uh, my father was from a rural village in India and I grew up with this very strong sense of having been uh, lucky uh, being born here as a woman, having the opportunities I had here with respect to my education. Um, I know that if I had been born in the village back in India, I probably would still be living in that village. Um, my father uh, was one of six kids and was the only one to go past the fifth grade, um, and you know, so life there is is quite hard, um, and so. As I was growing up, really wanted a career where I felt like I would be giving back, um, paying it forward, so to speak. Um, and was looking for something that would combine um, science and and public service in some way. And that really led me to medicine.
0: Okay, so how did you end up in infectious disease?
2: Yeah, so that more specifically. Um, you know, I think what I like about infectious diseases is that it's this really interesting Rather multidisciplinary field where it combines hard sciences. So everything from virology to immunology to microbiology, uh, but also, um, other social sciences. So, you know, you really also have to, uh, understand, um, anthropology, history, politics. Um, I think the current pandemic demonstrates the need for, for some of these other skills in terms of how do you, um, Communicate with patients at the, at the patient clinical level, but at the public health level, how do you formulate policy? How do you um, advance policy? Uh, really does require many different um, skills. And so that, that really drew me. Um, and then also just, if you look at who's affected by infectious diseases, it tends to be diseases of poverty and um, really was attracted to a field where there was a social justice component of of really advocating for um, the most vulnerable among us.
0: That's uh, really ambitious and really laudable. In that case, can you tell us a little bit, infectious disease is quite a broad field. What does a day in the life look like for you? Mm -hmm. And this is open to both of you.
1: Yes, I just want to add a couple of words how I came to immunology. Basically, not an infectious disease by itself, so I'm in clinical immunopathology and from medical school, when I was there in the middle, I uh, had to do some research and my interest was in neuroscience. But we also in medical school, at six years, we need to do a medical project and uh, research project, and I found a weapon psychoneuroimmunology. And this is how I came to more immunology field. But uh, my interest was always in the research. And after medical school, I only did research. I didn't want to do a lot of practice and clinical job, but it just happened after I came to the United States as a, a refugee. So after uh, several years, it was a place in clinical lab, and my previous boss just invited me to help him in the clinical immunopathology lab, and this is how uh i found myself uh in a clinical lab this is what i do so basically it's uh, two jobs at the same time i have my research lab i have my clinical lab and i need to be on both of them 100 percent of time probably 200 percent of time and yeah talking about my day yeah we can do it like what i have today or yesterday so usually it starts in the morning around nine o'clock when i come and start Checking my emails, whatever it's important to answer right away. Then I pretty often have a medical student. It's uh, usually last year medical students because I'm also an elective director and I teach medical students in this elective course with tumor immunology. This is my research field. This is what I do. And sometimes it's half an hour, sometimes it's one hour and Students usually come to my office, but in last year we also, yes, can do it on a Zoom. After that, I usually have a resident, so I teach resident pathology. Right now I have three residents, and this is a one-month course, one month we talk every morning about clinical aspects of immunology, different group of diseases, and then we do and resolve some pieces together. And mostly the main goal is a protein electrophoresis, immunification, and this is what I try to teach them. Sometimes I have residents from other groups, like from rheumatology, and several times per year. So after it's done, then I go to the lab. The lab is right here, and do my main job. Yes are uh, reading some tests and signing them, COVID, electrophoresis, MS uh, tests, and, and some other. And of course, it's always a lot of calls from physicians asking for help with uh, data interpretation and uh, some other things. But on the top of it, so you can, in addition to teaching and directing the lab, and teaching residents, talking with faculty. Yes, we have a lot of, uh, lectures here because I'm in several different programs, <coughs> clinical program, tumor immunology, cancer, uh, immune environment. So, and usually it's every day a lecture or two. So sometimes, uh, we have company representative coming with the questions or, uh, offering or discussing new equipment no new, new tests. This is what I have to do. In addition, I am editor in chief and email So it's another job to do. I review a lot of papers for different journals. So it takes some time and grant review. It's always there. So we cannot do anything just to help. And of course, I participate in different meetings, write some letters, recommendation and many different things. And only in the evening, I have little bit more time for my research, my reading, writing my own grant, and analyzing some research data from my research. Line. This is I how I it.
0: I see what you mean about it being a job 200% of the time. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Celine? What does your day in the life look like?
2: Um, it has evolved uh, quite a lot over time. So early in my career, I worked in tuberculosis and HIV overseas, um, largely focused in sub-Saharan Africa. um, And that started um, in Soweto at Baraguanath Hospital. Um, So back then, um, I was uh, conducting research on how to prevent uh, tuberculosis among HIV infected persons. At that time, your HIV uh, infection rate in pregnant women were between 30 and 40% in um, Soweto. And so what I was doing was working with the perinatal HIV clinics to implement TB screening um, and uh, treatment and preventive therapy, uh, because if you are not only infected with HIV, but also TB during pregnancy, that can be highly morbid and mortal for both the mother and the, and the child. And so that was the kind of work I was doing early in my in my career. Um, so it was a combination of epidemiology, um, some clinical work, um, and then also, you know, really educating people. So spending a lot of time educating um, the staff about how to do these things, educating uh, patients about why this is important, educating the community about the interaction between TB and HIV. Um later um was back the more domestically in the US, um, where I was spending a lot of time in uh HIV clinics. So caring for patients, providing both their primary care and their HIV specialty care. And then time on the um, inpatient wards up until recent fairly recently, we still had um, wards at the hospital that were specific to HIV infected patients because They have a very um, specific cluster of of syndromes that are associated with HIV, AIDS, um, in addition to sort of all of the general medical issues everyone else has. Um, And so it was a way of organizing um, more specialized care for them, um, both medically as well as in terms of um, their social and and mental health needs. So was working on the wards, um, the HIV, AIDS wards um, where we also have uh, medical students, residents, fellows who rotate through. So the teaching is really in the context of seeing patients where they come with you um, on on morning rounds, you see all the patients together, you talk through each of the patient's problems, issues, and you teach at the bedside based on what that particular patient has. and then um, I also worked at the Department of Health in New York City. I ran the tuberculosis uh, program in New York City. Uh, so that was managing a bureau of about 250 people, um, about a $50 million budget uh, at the time. And so your staff, um, you have different kinds of staff. Uh, the city runs TB clinics where you see TB patients, and those are uh, free services to anybody who's in New York City, um, whether you are not, you're a citizen or not. Um, and so there's sort of that clinical piece. Um, then you have laboratories that we run um, for the diagnosis of TB to um, assess for things like resistance. Um, so in other words, are these strains of TB resistant to certain drugs? Uh, and then you have um, an epidemiology unit, which does things like contact tracing, trying to connect cases to one another. Um, you have uh, community health workers who go to uh, the homes of people with TB to observe them taking their medication. It's what we call directly observed therapy to make sure that they're taking their medication, that they're um, not having any side effects, that their other needs are being met so that they can be um, successful with completing their treatment um, so I I also did that for a while um, and then more recently um, I was an Ebola aid worker in West Africa so it's been a couple months um, in West Africa and there, there were many challenges that are not dissimilar to what we're seeing with COVID today so it, it was um, a situation where Ebola was very politicized. You had multiple um, countries that were having their own presidential elections at the time. Um, And just like happened here, um, you know, people talked about Ebola being a hoax. Ebola is not real. This is something that was ginned up by whatever political party to prevent us from campaigning, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, you know, a lot of the work I was doing was really trying to understand some of those conversations on the ground um, because that w- became an impediment to people presenting to Ebola triage units, treatment units um, to be tested. Uh, it was also an obstacle to safe burial. So uh, burial teams were set up where people would come and pick up um, the deceased and make sure that the bodies were tested and then safely buried. But then families became very suspicious of this, uh, again, because of the rumors and conspiracy theories around the epidemic. And so this is sort of what I'm talking about, the anthropology and the politics. It, you know, you're not going to be successful um, in terms of the science and the clinical and the public health if you if you don't engage in some of these other issues. And so that was a big part of what I was doing. And then finally, um, just mapping out who was doing what, where, because things were very disorganized. And so figuring out which um, NGO, non-governmental organization, was working with which hospital or clinic, what the needs were. You know, so places needed for us to dig a well because there wasn't running water. Other places needed help with other aspects of infection control. Um, so really just mapping out those efforts. Uh, and then around that time, I also started to pivot to um, medical journalism um and so some of that is writing some of that is television some of that is um, podcasting like we're doing now i have two of my own podcasts one of which is called epidemic uh, which is available on all the usual platforms but um epidemic i launched in february of 2020 with ron Klein, who is now the chief of staff uh, to president biden um and in the course of that season um really covered all the different aspects of of the current pandemic. So the science, the public health, the social impacts, um, and even some historical episodes comparing um, the current pandemic to prior pandemics. Um, So uh, in the fall, was nominated to um, serve on Biden's uh, transition COVID transition advisory board. Um, so that also um, changed my schedule quite a bit. That was a lot of time spent interfacing with stakeholders, um, everyone from, you know, physicians to teachers unions to, um, I don't know, um, la- laboratories to um, uh, you know, various different local politicians, et cetera, trying to understand what were the needs, what was working well, what was not working well, where we could be helpful. Um, And so during that time, that was probably like six to eight hours a day of just calls um, in addition to the the regular things I do. Uh, And then I do a a lot of media um, in terms of television. So, you know, yesterday um, did um, probably 10 different interviews, some of which were for television, some for print, for radio. Um, And, you know, a lot of that is spent explaining for a lay audience, the science of COVID. Um, And so the latest news that's come out on COVID is, uh, at least in this country in the US, um, is looking at breakthrough infections. And what does that mean? Is this something we need to be worried about? And um, there's been a bit of a controversial Announcement this week as to whether we need additional doses of COVID vaccine. Um, The science is not there yet. We are seeing decreased vaccine effectiveness against um, infection, but not against severe disease, hospitalization and death. In fact, the protection against those more severe outcomes remains um, quite good. And so while... um, I don't dispute the fact that we likely will eventually need um, a third dose. And I, if you look at other vaccines, most vaccines are three to four dose regimens. Um, it seems a bit premature based on, on where the science is now. And so this is something you know we are actively discussing um, both internally um, among scientists and public health officials, but also publicly uh, in the media.
0: Wow. Well, I hope if there's one thing people take away from this, it's how hardworking immunopathologists and infectious disease professionals are. So for both of you, can you tell me, uh, are there any common misconceptions about your work that you encounter, either with other laboratory medicine professionals or among healthcare professionals in general? Michael, I know you said you work with a lot of different healthcare professionals. Do you encounter any misconceptions you see frequently?
1: In in general in general not much because most of the physicians uh it's the same physician who come me with a question or discussion of the cases and they know what we can do. And the basic misconception which I saw during last I don't know twenty years among physicians, how immunologists accept that thing, how they interpret and what we really see. Because it's not like in a chemistry. Or toxicology, you have yes or no, you have numbers. In immunology, data and result, patient result interpretation, it's definitely much more difficult and requires immunopathologist or pathologist expertise. And sometimes misunderstanding maybe in this field. So we used to have a kind of uh, visiting day or open days in our lab. And when physicians or fellows or residents from different departments come and really see how test is done and what we see in this test, not just the numbers, but like an or western blood. So it's much more difficult, and they really appreciate when we can explain to them yes, what's going on in the lab. And this is why we have now uh, fellows and residents from other departments sent to us to our lab to see what's really and um, actually going on. But the main misunderstanding is it's coming from administrators who are mixing up immunological tests in a lab with again with a classical chemistry. So immunology is a very special lab. So it's not a completely automated lab where all samples can be done automatically. And it's required definitely Expertise and skills, um, from all of our uh, technicians who are usually in the field for 20 or 30 years. So, and it's definitely special training. And this is where we can see sometimes misunderstanding, uh, from administrative point of view that it's easy to change us to find a new person and you can work, uh, next day as in, uh, some other, uh, clinical. Lab.
0: The open days are a really good idea. I don't think I've seen a lot of departments doing that for other healthcare professionals.
1: Yeah, it's not easy to do. So we used to do it when our lab was within the hospital. So now for all uh, lab medicine, we have an independent and separate building, 9 a building, and it's kind of uh, more difficult for physicians to find out and to come whenever they, they want them. So, but definitely we always think
0: about this so we can do it again. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a great idea. Celine, what about you? What misconceptions do you encounter? I know you work a lot more with the general public.
2: Yeah, I don't think um, the general public really understands infectious disease as a specialty. Um, one common error that continues to be made by journalists is confusing epidemiology and infectious diseases and while there is some synergy and overlap I think people think epidemiology must mean you're a specialist in epidemics um, and that's not quite right it's actually the mathematics of disease and disease transmission and disease incidence which could be infectious or it could be non-infectious um, and so I think that's really important that people understand that they're not the same one is really about mathematics which is uh, a mathematics that's sort of similar to um, what you might see in e- economics or econometrics, um, which is not, not the same as what we do in infectious diseases, uh, whether that's more the basic science or the, the clinical. So I think that's one big misconception. I think another misconception is, um, you know, who is an expert in these things? And this is another thing that's been very frustrating over the course of the pandemic, is not every doctor is an expert in everything. Um, you would not go to a podiatrist for your heart attack. Similarly, you should not go to a cardiologist for your infectious disease issue unless it is um, myocarditis or something you know that's specific to the heart where we would work together as a team, um, infectious diseases and cardiology. And similarly, I think where you've seen a lot of the issues with misinformation and disinformation in the media, some of the worst perpetrators of that are people who are um, moving outside of their area of specialty. Um, many of the worst perpetrators of misinformation about COVID have been cardiologists, neuroradiologists, people who really just are not experts in this space, um, but because they have an MD behind their name, are seen as experts by the lay public.
0: Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of confusion around who is an expert in what and how many different disciplines infectious disease covers in its breadth. So,
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And then how do you convey that to the public um, is a challenging one.
0: Mm-hmm. And I understand, of course, you mentioned that you do it uh, in your podcasts, among other things. Can you tell us a little bit about those?
2: Yeah, sure. So I have two podcasts. One which I launched in uh, 2017, 2018, um, and that one's called American Diagnosis. It's on the intersection of health and social justice, um, so big public health issues. So the first season was focused on youth and mental health, uh, second season on the opioid overdose crisis, um, season three on gun violence, and our next season will look at indigenous health. And you might say, well, what does an infectious disease doctor know about these things? I mean, this is where, um, and this goes back to the early days of AIDS. Many specialists did not want to see our patients. And so, um, you know, if you read books, for example, by Abraham uh, in my own country, um, he talks about, you know, he had, as an infectious disease doctor, had to learn how to do colonoscopies and bronchoscopies, which is where you scope somebody in their lungs or in their colon, because the, quote, specialists wouldn't touch those patients. And so very often we've had to learn um, other things, whether it is mental health or, um, you know, many of my patients uh, end up with infectious diseases as a complication of injection drug use. So learning to manage um, substance use issues is a big part of what we do. If you think about gun violence, what are the long-term complications? Well, a lot of infectious complications. So that's something that, you know, we see a lot of Um, and then in terms of indigenous health, uh, more recently, um, I had been spending a lot of time prior to the pandemic on Indian reservations in the United States, um, uh, in the Southwest and in the far Northeast, um, caring for patients. Um, and those are some of the highest disease burden part of the countries, much of which is infectious disease, but not all, um, And so across these different um, podcast seasons, we really delve into um, some of the science um, of of these issues, but importantly, what are some of the evidence-based solutions Um, and and, um, what are some of the things that we really need to be scaling up at a, a broader scale that are solutions that work.
0: Tell me then. Um, given recent events, I suspect that a lot more people will be interested in careers in immunology, immunopathology, infectious disease-related fields. What advice would you give to those people, uh, Michael? Do you want to start?
1: And it's it's a good question, an interesting question, but it's not as simple as you presented it. Of course, COVID changed our life, and of course, more people start thinking. Uh, about immunology, clinical immunology, pathology. But it's not as simple because in general, my uh, thought is that immunology is not perfectly introduced in a medical course. And the recent event with the COVID uh, probably can change it, but you cannot change it in one day or one month or one year. So, it's a lot of uh, necessary steps which should introduce pathology and clinical immunopathology or infection disease uh, in a better way. And uh, to increase awareness of these diseases and, yes, pandemic definitely is an example how it might help in, uh, in the best way. And now we talk much more about COVID, so basically we were one of the very first lab in the United States who started uh COVID uh testing in terms of and we have our clinical trial right now on antibody response on a multiplex of three different type of antibodies in health professional after vaccination. And long time ago it came this idea that if people had a natural disease they don't need two vaccinations, one may be uh, good enough. And right now we are pushing the idea, it's all our publication, we did like 10 publications last year on COVID, that we definitely need to follow patients in terms of the, the immune response, specific immune response, uh, to SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus, and detect the time when people with low response or response which disappeared much faster, definitely requires additional boosting. And I think finally, we are we are almost here, at least in, uh, uh, in the United States. And in terms of advice, I always give just one advice to a medical students and fellows related to uh, their interest in immunology. It's a brain exercise. So always keep reading, exercise your brain with a new diseases. Immune-mediated disease is the biggest group of diseases. Twenty-five percent of patients in our hospital definitely suffer from some type of uh, immune-mediated inflammatory conditions uh, or syndrome. And if they want to be in the field, they need to read as much as they can and go to different labs, not only clinical labs, but research labs. So, immunological research is very important because it gives us a basic understanding what's going on and how uh, we can deal with uh, a new type of Diseases or a new type of infection, pandemic infection. So, brain exercise this
0: is the best advice. Excellent. What about you, Celine?
2: You know, I think um, so much of the career paths people choose are on the basis of a mentor that they really connected with. And so, it's a little bit serendipitous. <laughs> For some people, you know, what field they, they end up in as a result, it's more to do with the personality of the mentor. Um, and so what I would say is um, really try to work, and it sort of complements what Michael was saying, try to work with many, many people, um, both clinical labs, uh, research labs. You know, if you're if you're looking more for the basic sciences, if you're interested in um, you know, more clinical infectious diseases or public health, trying to have a wide range of experiences working in different settings, um, I think really is is the best way. It's very difficult to figure out what you want to do in a theoretical, abstract sense. I think the best way to figure that out is, is really um, to experience it and um, to have a wide range of experiences, um, understanding that, you know, the larger your sample size, so to speak, uh, the you know more accurate your perception of of um, the opportunities will be. Um, so yeah, I mean I think I think just try try and and be open to to new experiences.
0: So exposure is key then.
2: I think so. I think so. Yeah, I agree.
0: Great, thank you. So um, one last question for you both, and Michael, we'll start with you again. What's the one key thing you would want other lab and healthcare professionals to know about your discipline?
1: Okay, good question. So at least to know that we exist. So from clinical uh, perspective, most of the physicians who used to order our tests, they definitely know that we are here. But from research point of view, uh, many research labs. And research department has no idea about clinical immunopathology and what tests we do here and how it helps for especially not only for our patients, but for clinical research as well. So even the good example is that we have a department of immunology and many faculty there they didn't know about the existence of the clinical lab where most and a lot of different clinical tests is available. That we can help with their research. So, if we can help any, if we can get any help from administrators, so it definitely would be important to tell about clinical immunopathology lab and different tests which we have.
0: Amazing. You wouldn't think that immunologists wouldn't know about the immunopathology lab.
1: Yeah, so I had to give a special lectures and presentation and many of them were surprised how many tests we have. So in our small lab, we have up to 1000 blood tubes every day and we do more than 10,000 tests per day and it's only with seven people in a lab.
0: Wow, so definitely worth shouting about its existence. What about you, Celine? What's your key message about infectious disease for other healthcare professionals?
2: Well, you know, I, I don't think we have quite the same um, challenges. We're one of the most highly consulted uh, <laughs> specialty services, sometimes uh, for the wrong reason. We're known to be very uh, detail oriented. Um, and so it's a classic uh, kind of a joke that um, surgeons will consult infectious diseases right before a hospital discharge that we summarize months of of data in the chart and then they can just cut and paste that into their discharge summary. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a bit of a a stereotype, but um, in terms of misconception, I mean, I think one thing that's really important for people to understand is our patients tend to be um, poor um, so in the United States, that means that they are very often on Medicaid or uninsured. Um, they are often immigrants, uh, often uh, undocumented, all of which creates challenges for caring for that patient population. And in the United States as a, a clinician, you are compensated on the basis of how your patients are valued in society, not on the basis of how hard you work or the quality of your work. And so. Um, that's very much reflected in, in compensation for infectious diseases. It's one of the least well-compensated uh, professions with um, any medicine as a result. Um, and, you know, and I do think there needs to be a recalibration um, around some of those things because it has a big impact on um, recruitment into the field and how people choose um, their long-term careers. Um, and that's, that's to the detriment of everybody. Mm-hmm.
0: But on the other hand, I guess my big takeaway from that is if it's currently not well compensated, but there are people like you doing it, it speaks well to your aims in doing it and to the care those patients will receive from people like you.
2: Well, you know, and I think the people who end up in, that, in infectious diseases tend to be very mission driven, um, very committed, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I love my colleagues. Uh, you know I think it's a really um, wonderful
0: group of people that's great that's so important in any job so it's wonderful to hear that the people who work here in infectious disease are so dedicated to what they do and so dedicated to each other okay um I think that's all the questions I have for you today so I just want to thank you both Michael and Celine for being with us on the pathology grand tour today it's been wonderful to have you
2: thank you oh my pleasure